0: In your bulletin, it says chapter 1, but it's actually going to be chapter 2. Is that right, Ben? Okay, so we'll do chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. And then we'll jump to chapter 4 and do verses 32 through 37. Um, And so I'm going to turn there on my phone. And when you're ready, if you could join me um, in standing for the reading of God's Word, if you're able. Again, it's Acts two. 42 through 47, to start with. And I'm reading from the ESV. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Now we'll turn to Acts chapter 4, verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own but they had everything in common, and with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold, and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means "son of encouragement," a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. This is the word of God for the people of God.
1: So Good evening. Uh, my name is Ben Milner, I'm one of the pastors here. I'm glad you're here. Um, we're looking at the Book of Acts. Uh, which should really be called not the Acts of the Apostles, but the Acts of the Continuing Acts of the Ascended uh, Lord Jesus Christ. Because uh, it's really not so much the action of the Apostles that's going on, they're actually being animated by uh, the Holy Spirit, which is sent out from the crowned king, uh, Jesus Christ. So it's really the actions of Jesus from his control center um, up in in the heavens, where he has gone uh, at the ascension. And the ascension is how the book of Acts starts. And uh, it's probably the least appreciated part of the gospel. We we know about the cross and the resurrection. A lot of people do, at least. But his ascension is also part of that equation, equally important. And if he were just resurrected only but not ascended, he would just be walking around this earth right now, um, which he could still minister to individual people. But now that he's gone into the heavens um, in the invisible realm, he's moved through into the invisible realm. And in that place, he can actually send his spirit and just animate Billions of people at once, which he's doing right now, including you and I. He's, um, he's moving us around. So he, when he was crowned king, uh, he kind of took the throne of the world. And from, and from now on reigns over the world. It's kind of like King Arthur in, in the year 516 A.D. He, uh, he rallied the Britons and conquered the Saxons and essentially took the throne of England and unified England. And from that point on, anyone uh, that was a Saxon was kind of a rebel. But Arthur had taken the throne. And so now King Jesus is on the throne of the world. And uh, he is going to move from Jerusalem, which is where he rose from, the, uh, into the heavens. He ascended. And from Jerusalem he will go to Judea, which is the first circle out from Jerusalem. And then Samaria. And then all the ends of the earth. And his first strategic attack, um, it's kind of like the, the German uh, blitzkrieg, which meant lightning strike. It was a quick, sudden attack at, the, at Pentecost, where literally it's like his... The lightning from heaven came down. And I compared it last uh, week to the creation of life on earth when this supposed lightning strike hit and the first uh, living thing appeared, you know, 4.7 billion years ago. Um, it's like at Pentecost, Christ sent down this lightning strike and it created uh, this whole new kind of life, which was the church. And he created kind of like this, um, it's, it's like the new temple. Um, it's a living temple of his body the body of Christ, which is what we are part of as a church. And so we now have this nuclear power kind of inside of us that's called the Holy Spirit. And everyone that's a believer has that Holy Spirit in them, and we are his dwelling place on earth. We are witnesses to his reign. That's what the church is. So as witnesses, we are being moved by the ascended Lord Christ um, to show people around the world what he is like, both in, um, in things we say... In the way we worship, but also in the way we live together, our community is a very important part of the witness to what he's like—the kind of Lord that he is. So, I want to look at worship first, and then hospitality. In this a very famous passage, there was—there um, was for many years, people wanted us to have a mission statement at our church. We still don't really have one. Um, not on principle, we just don't really have one. But. Um, when people would ask what our mission statement was, we would always say, well, it's really Acts 2.42-47. That's where you see what the church is supposed to be like in all times and places. I mean, all churches really have the same mission statement. It's, that's what it looks like. Um, that is; Those are the core values of the church, these things we're going to talk about. And the first thing you see in that Acts 2.42-47, through because this is the brand new church. This is the first time we see a description of what the church is like. So it's fresh, newly minted. And it says in verse 42... Uh, they being the, the the disciples, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, which is kind of like our small groups. Also kind of like the prayers we just prayed where Laura led us in prayer. That's fellowshipping, where we're sharing with one another, uh, life together. So they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That's basically the preaching of the word. Fellowship, which we also do in small groups. The breaking of bread, that's a technical term for the Lord's Supper that's used all over the New Testament. So it's definitely the Lord's Supper. And then the prayers, notice it's the prayers, it's not prayer, that's liturgy. The prayers are like the Psalms. So this is, um, this is the earliest Christian worship service. And you have these elements of, of fellowship. That certainly should be happening when we gather together. Uh, fellowship with one another. Um, you have the preaching of the word. You have the prayers, the liturgy that we say back and forth. And then you have the Lord's Supper, which is the climax of it. It's a lot like synagogue worship. The Jews would have been used to synagogue worship. Every Saturday they would get together, and they would do a lot of these same things. But this is a new day. It's not Saturday now. It's Sunday, the resurrection day. So they've changed the day. It's also a new teaching, because now you're talking about the apostles' teaching. So now you have this added element of the gospel, of the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. So you have a new day, a new teaching, and now you have a new sacrament. Instead of the Passover meal, every week the Christians started to celebrate the Lord's Supper. So this is the weekly liturgy of these early early Christians. Is they would have fellowship, apostles teaching, uh, the breaking of bread, the Lord's Supper, and the prayers, which are liturgy. And there was a new passion as well in this uh, new worship that Christ is created by the Holy Spirit. It says that um, they had this insatiable hunger uh, for worship. In verse 46, day by day, they attended the temple together, praising God. So not only did they meet one one time a week, and it's really not enough to meet one time a week to follow the New Testament pattern of, of church. They met every day, and I think that's a great thing. It's very hard to do that, but um, this is the brand new, incredibly motivated, um, filled with passion church, and they met day to day, and they would gather at the temple and they would praise God. That's not even their worship service, that was just weekly meetings to, to worship God. And there's also a new level of holiness, um, there is this awe. That comes upon them. Verse 43 Awe came upon every soul. And I think that awe um, is partly because we are now, as the church, we are the temple. And so we are the Holy of Holies. In the Old Testament, it was like um, God's presence was located in the Holy of Holies, which is part of the temple. And it was a cube. It was a perfect cube. And in that perfect cube was the presence of God, the Shekinah glory. And now it's like the Holy of Holies has come out into the church. And uh, we are all now in the cube. And so there's great awe. When Isaiah saw uh, God in his temple, uh, he was undone. And he uh, heard the angels say, uh, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And he, he broke down and he, um, he felt like he was dead. He felt like he was a dead man because so much awe had come upon him. And we are now like in this other dimension as the church. I compared it to uh, in, the, in the in the show Stranger Things, that portal into the Upside Down, which is kind of like a huge. If you haven't seen it's like this huge glowing red eye with this intense white light in the center, and it looks like this living thing. And in some ways, moving into the presence of God is like moving in that from one dimension into another dimension. You're now in the Upside Down, except like this is the right side up, and the Upside Down is uh, is the is the invisible world that is now in intersecting with our world here. And we don't always feel it, um, but that is what the Bible claims, that in gathering together, awe shows up. Uh, conviction of, of sin should happen when we gather in the church. There should be a weightiness that you feel uh, because of the fact that um, these people were feeling like they were the actual holy of holies, where the, the Holy Spirit dwelled. And so... I would say one thing as far as application goes, um, because this is essentially a worship service we're talking about here. This is the very first one. And and awe, I mean, do you feel a sense of awe? Uh, Is it uh, a formality for you to come to worship here or a duty that you check off, got that over with? Sometimes people used to tell me, I don't come to Salem because I like to worship in the morning and kind of get that over with and then watch football in the afternoon. And uh, the idea of getting it over over with uh, is certainly not uh, consonant with what we see in the book of Acts here, that awe came upon them, this overwhelming, terrifying sense of the presence of God. And so if this feels like this is parenthetical to your real life, like it's something that's a sidebar or adjacent to your real life, and that the real life is your Monday through Friday, your career, your studies, you know, whether you're dating or married, whether you have kids or not, that's what's really going on. And this is this kind of thing that's like a pop-up window. It's like a little thing that you do in your life, a sideshow or a sidebar or secondary. But this passage says, no, this is the main event. Your life revolves around this. This, this is the thing that life is all about. And everything out there is a very important sidebar. Um, but it's not the main thing. It's secondary. That's the sideshow. This is the main event. Last Sunday, uh, I was very aware of this because um, I went up to talk to my son, Cooper. And I hate to put him on the spot here, but uh, I went up to talk to my son, Cooper. And I asked him if he was feeling kind of sick. He had been sick that week. He was feeling better that day. But I asked him if he was excited to come to church. Are you looking forward to church, to being back with other people? And he was like, eh. And I love the honesty that a, that a pastor's son could do that. That's great. I'm so glad that he did that. And, uh, I love that um, I didn't shame him or anything like that. I was like, I get that. I know that feeling. Um, But then later I was running around Salem Lake and I texted him. I just felt convicted because what he said convicted me. But that is so often my, like I'm coming to church, but um, I'm having to miss like the NFL playoffs, you know, or something that's more important than church. And so I texted him. This is kind of passive aggressive. This may be a B plus parenting. I said it's a little bit dangerous to feel like things about the church are hindrances to real happiness and everything else is actually where the joy is found. Whether that's like playoffs or Reynolds basketball or food or friends. Because I feel that so much sometimes. That like going to small group or the prayer meeting or church or reading the Bible or praying, that those are, oh, I've got to do those things now. But my real life is all the other things. But it's actually supposed to be completely flipped. We've got to remember that the king is on the throne. And our culture is engineered with you know, billions of dollars spent to make you think that that is not the main event. And that everything else you do, especially you know, our, our phones and everything on our phones, is the main event. But his, his spirit is so powerful uh, that it actually can like, bend. Uh, it's like a physical force that like, bends the material world. That that he is the um, he is the real deal. <clears throat> he is the thing where everything is, makes everything happen. It's like a he compares it when he's talking to Nicodemus in John three to a strong wind that blows to the trees, and he says you can see the trees bloom, you can't see the wind. But my Holy Spirit is like the wind, and all you see is the effect of the wind. I love going down to the beach, and one thing I love at the beach is when you see the palm trees like being blown over, and they're kind of. They're being bent a little bit, and the leaves are making that rustling sound, kind of crackling under the force of the sea breeze. And so the wind is the power of the Holy Spirit. And then the things we see moving are the signs and wonders that he creates. Um, And that moves to the next point. The the, the wind is the power of the Holy Spirit generated in worship. And then the hospitality, uh, the signs and wonders of the church, are the things you see by the power of the wind. They are, they are not the wind. But when you see someone op- open up their, their pocketbook or write a check or give money away, that's or open their home up or have somebody over for dinner or just welcome them into a, a meeting they're having, That's the, these are things that are the power of the Holy Spirit, moving the physical world, moving our, our thoughts uh, to change our actions. So the worship, the first point, creates the hospitality, the second point. The hospitality is impossible without the worship. So don't even... Don't even move on to the second point if you're not at the first point. If you don't have the worship, it's not going to create this. This hospitality is going to be just impossible and feel almost like it'll make you feel condemned. Because it's it's uh, it's so amazing. But I think about the way worship creates hospitality in other spheres. So at the World Cup, when Argentina won, if you saw the uh, the game, when Argentina won, I mean, their, their fans... Their hands were in the air, they were pumping, they were waving flags, they were chanting and hopping up and down, and they were singing. And because they were, like, worshipping uh, their team, and Messi in particular, they just it was literally like a worship service. But because of that, they were also hugging one another, probably strangers, like crying. Um, I don't know what they were saying to one another, but they probably had meals together. But the hospitality the horizontal connection that those Argentinian fans had was due to this vertical power of winning the World Cup. And so when we worship something, whether it's a game of sports or the ascended Lord, that's going to create a desire to welcome. Because when your hands go up, they also kind of come out and you're exposed, you're more vulnerable. So the worship uh, is the thing that creates the hospitality. And when I say hospitality, I'm talking about open up your life to other people. Whether it's uh, giving money away, or opening your home up to people, uh, sharing something really personal about your life, those are all forms of hospitality. And the main qualification for an elder in the New Testament is hospitality, by the way. Such an important virtue that is often neglected. But look at verse 44. Just a stunning level of hospitality that we can always shoot for, but is very hard to ever achieve. Uh, they, all who believed, and that's the vertical, they believed, So they were connected by their faith. If they didn't believe, this wouldn't work. The ones who believed were together, and they had all things in common. All things in common. That means they were sharing stuff all the time. They had all things in common. Uh, So remember the context. These are people from last week. These are pilgrims from all over the Roman world that came together. They were all uh, either god fears or they were Jewish people. And they all got converted at Pentecost. So now you have these thousands of people who were stranded in Jerusalem who did not want to go back to their homes because they loved the fellowship in Jerusalem so much. So these are pilgrims who got converted to Christianity and they were so bonded by worship they did not want to leave. And it says in verse 32 of chapter 4, they were of one heart and soul. It was like their thoughts, their souls, their, their feelings were just resonating with one another. They were so connected. They were of one heart and soul. So they, I can imagine them telling their stories to each other, sharing their lives around campfires late at night. They were confessing sins, telling each other things they'd never told anybody before, sharing praises of how God has answered prayer, sharing prayer requests, praying, like literally praying right there, laying hands on one another. Uh, they were listening well to each other. They were of one heart and soul. So they didn't want to go apart, all these pilgrims. And it says they were... Day by day, (coughs) breaking bread. They were having each other over for meals in their homes. That's not the Lord's Supper. That's just having meals in their homes. So they're, they're like, I think about college students. I was talking to someone who graduated from college this week. And he was like, I did not expect the fall off, the drop off that would occur. When you leave that community in college and you just enter the real world. And it's palpable. It's something to be lamented. And if you're a senior... Uh, if you're going out of college next year, just be ready for that and prepare yourself for that. And mostly find a church. Because that's the thing that, that's going to make that, that fall a little softer. Find a church. Find, find community. But these people in Jerusalem at this time, they were like, it's kind of like in college when you're studying together, you're eating together, you're talking all the time, you're running to each other on the quad, you're playing sports together, you're exercising together, you're just doing everything together. And it's wonderful. And I think about that as the picture of the early church here. It it is so intense, the hospitality, that... And this is where it kind of gets to the point of, is this really possible? Is, Is this level of awe and holiness possible that would create this event? But it says they sold their possessions and their belongings. And they distributed them to everyone as needed. So if I were one of these pilgrims from Egypt or Libya... And I came to Jerusalem and got converted and stayed there. Then someone who lived in Jerusalem would sell like really important things, maybe a a part of their land or an animal. They would sell something and they would give me the money so that I could stay there. Uh, If someone didn't have, have enough food to eat, they would come over for dinner to one of these people who lived in Jerusalem. If someone did not have a place to stay, there was always an extra room. And this is just the astounding level of hospitality that our culture is in such desperate need of, and does so poorly. Um, It says that even some of them sold their family inheritance, which was like their most treasured possession. So it says that Barnabas, in chapter 4, verse 37, sold a field that belonged to him. That would have been part of his family inheritance. That is a sign and a wonder of a miracle occurring because of the Holy Spirit moving this man. The Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ moved Barnabas to do that. So that he could help his brothers and sisters in need. And it's like the, the innermost fortress of the human heart that says mine, that wants a grip on its stuff. Like, that's my stuff, my precious. You know, I will not relinquish a hold on that. It's like the Holy Spirit just opened their, their arms up and their hands up. And were, they were like sharing. So it's, it's the, the, the power of the reign of Jesus. This is not communism. This is not a political thing. This was not... This is not compulsion in any way. They weren't even shaming each other or guilting each other. It's not church shame or guilt. This is completely voluntary that Barnabas said, I, moved by the power of the Holy Spirit of Jesus, want to sell my land for this person who needs my help. So it's absolutely incredible inward takeover of Christ and the love of Christ, the power of Christ. Again, uh, verse 32. No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. And were that true of us. Just even, I would just love to feel that even for moments where I felt like the stuff in my house is not really mine. I'm just a steward of that stuff and it is not mine. And I can share that. So I can give, uh, I can give away something I really love and really value and cherish. I can give that away freely to someone because they're my brother or sister. And this hospitality is so fresh and so new in the history of the world is so unheard of and so inexplicable that in verse 7 it says the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. And notice the Lord did it. It's his initiative. It's him working. It's his spirit. It's his wind, fresh wind, fresh fire moving them. They're being saved because they can't believe what they're seeing. They can't necessarily see the wind, but they see the effects of the wind. They see these people like opening up their lives to one another in incredible ways. There's a a great historian of the early church named Larry Hurtado. Uh, He wrote a very famous book called The Destroyer of the Gods, which is how in the book of Acts, basically all of the idols of Rome are being destroyed and taken down by Christ from his throne. He also wrote a book called Why on Earth Did Anyone Become a Christian in the First Three Centuries? Because there was so much social pressure not to be. For one thing, there was actual physical persecution. And we're going to see that later in the book of Acts. But much more importantly, that it was very costly socially and spiritually to become a Christian. Because back then, um, worship was an integral part of every meal, every gathering, every cultural event. Everything you did included worship. They did not have the separation of church and state at all. It was every government event, every political event was worship. And you worshiped the gods of Rome. So why would anybody leave the Roman Empire system and enter into Christianity? And what Larry Hurtado said is that it is unprecedented hospitality. This amazing welcome, inexplicable generosity of these Christians, that these are the signs and wonders, the awe that is coming upon these people. And the question I ask myself as I prepare for this is, is there anything in my life that is inexplicable like that. That could only be explained by like the gust of wind from the Holy Spirit. Just some action that I have performed. Something that where Christ has come upon me and moved me so deeply. When Margie and I were uh, newly married in Richmond, Virginia, we moved into our first apartment and um, we had our furniture for the first time ever, our bed, we had our, everything in common and um, we were at one salary, which was my salary because she was at school. I think it was like $36,000. Thirty-six thousand dollars of a teacher, a high school teacher, and uh, these friends dropped by that we really admired that we met in London, uh, Wendy and Ian Balcom. and um, I was I was a brand new Christian. I was kind of on this rant about how the the church is so bourgeois and so uh, taken over by capitalism and is consumeristic and greedy and there's no radical generosity in the church and why can't we be like Saint Francis? I just read a book on Saint Francis and. Um, and so that Wendy and Ian asked, oh, so do y'all practice tithing? And I had really never heard what that meant. So I said, what is tithing? And they said, well, you just take your salary and you just move that decimal point one over. So you go from 36000 and then it says 3600 And then that's the amount of give you give every year to the church. And I had never even considered that. I felt very generous for putting a $20 bill in the offering to I felt really good about that. Like I was... Like that was a massive act of the Holy Spirit for me to give $20 each week. But it was kind of like awe came upon me. That was a new vision I had never even imagined. That one would give $3,600. That's like a huge amount of your take-home pay each month to the church. To support the church. And I realized, you know, all that complaining that I had done. And I had never even gotten started in the process of giving money away. And I think the reason I realized I hadn't is because I had never felt connected enough to a church. I had never felt one heart and soul enough to a group of people that I would feel comfortable doing that. Because I didn't really trust that group. And it makes sense if you don't do that, if you don't trust the group, if you're not connected to that group. But we started tithing, which is, you know, it's not Barnabas giving away his family inheritance, but it's a start. It's something. And it is a sign and a wonder that we would do that. That takes remarkable... uh, power from God to loosen someone's heart to do that kind of thing. Because it is, if you invested that money, it would make you a ton of money. I mean, if we had invested that money over all the years, the amount of money we would have in retirement would be, like, amazing. We would never probably have to worry again if we had taken that money over all the years and put it in retirement. It's its a, it's a crazy act. It's inexplicable. It doesn't make any sense why you would do that. And I'm not boasting here, because I'm not even close to what this is talking about in this passage here. This is talking about a level of hospitality and generosity that I don't even feel like we're close to. And yet, having said that, because it was really easy for me when I preached to preach this sermon to just get feel condemnation like we're not even anywhere close. So I I talked to the staff and we wrote down some things about the amount of stuff people are doing in this church that should encourage us. Um, Just the amount of time people are giving And time is is equally important as money in terms of possession we have. So there's 27 people who help with music here. That's a lot of time they give. There are eight people who do liturgy, which is what Laura was doing tonight. There are eight people that read scripture. There are three people that volunteer for sound. There's eight people in childcare every week. Just think about the time these people are giving every week. There's four youth volunteers. They do it every week. Seven Sunday school teachers. There's eight elders and seven servant leaders. Those are our officers. And they spend every other week, you know, a a large amount of time together. And then also visiting people. We have these dinners for eight that are happening right now. That's a lot of time people give to preparing those, having people over. There's men's and women's breakfast brunches we just talked about that Andrew mentioned. There are meal calendars when someone has a baby or is sick and people bring meals to those people. Uh, People volunteer for cities with dwellings. Uh, A lot of times our small groups do that, these uh, homeless shelters at night. There are over 100 people in small groups. There are 48 kids in Sunday school. There's 21 people in the youth group, 20 in Bible studies, 15 at prayer meetings. And we have a church of around 250. That's just a lot of people doing things. And so it would be very easy to condemn ourselves as we're not anywhere close to Acts 2, 42 through 47. But I don't think that's true. I think the Spirit is doing a lot here. There's a lot, there's a lot higher bar. There's way more we could be doing but the good thing is that our church is centered around this meal, which is a meal of grace. And so we've got to be really kind to ourselves and show grace to ourselves and be patient with ourselves. As we try to move forward you know, towards that level of hospitality, let's just remember that the Lord who gathers us at his table says, It's okay. It's okay. Where, where, wherever you are right now is fine. All is forgiven. Don't beat yourself up, but just keep moving forward. You know, just keep trying to do more hospitality. Keep trying to worship uh, with a greater sense of awe. Whatever it takes, you know, keep moving forward. But but there is total grace. If you've never given away a penny in your life, Christ is like, I love you, I'm so glad you're here, and I'm going to help you get started. You know, he's completely gracious. So we are gathered around a table.
0: Remember, we love these rascals.